0: you wanted to share something with them. Uh, you knew that this was the last time that you have an opportunity to teach them. What would you teach them in those final moments that you had with them? You know, of all the things that, that we could share, I'm sure you know most of us would say, you know, the first thing I'd want to tell them is is how much I love them. But but after you expressed that and you recognize, man, I only have a few more hours left, and I want to leave you with some knowledge that I have learned. I want to leave you with some truth that will hopefully guide you in life. You know, what is it that you would want to pass on to, whether it be your children or a loved one or just someone that you wanted to invest in, give a few more words of wisdom before you would be departing from them? You know, maybe you would want to share with them the importance of Trusting and relying upon God. You know, perhaps you'd want to invest in, you know, telling them about you know how vital it is to have a daily relationship with God and studying his word and, and taking time to pray, or you know, you'd want to share about how to be a, a godly wife and mother or or a godly husband and father, the importance of working hard and, and doing all for the glory of God. Now I'm sure if we took some time to think about it. Each one of us would come up with several important things that we would want to communicate to those people if we were in that circumstance where we only had a few more hours with them and we had that opportunity to just share with them something that they could hopefully hold on to in the future. Well, that is basically the situation that we have with Jesus and his disciples Here in John chapter 13 all the way through chapter 17, Jesus knows he only has a few more hours left with his disciples before he's betrayed, before he's arrested, before he's crucified. And so there in the upper room... There as they are partaking of Passover together, Jesus realizes, you know what? This is my last opportunity before I die to impart to my disciples some important truths. And last week we saw the first important truth that Jesus delivered to his disciples. It was an important truth about what godly greatness looks like, what godly greatness is. And Jesus didn't just teach a lesson with words, he also taught a lesson with a physical example in front of them. Remember, he actually got up, washed the disciples' feet, demonstrated to them, and told them the lesson that, hey... You know what? True greatness in the eyes of God is humbling yourself and serving others. Well, as we continue through John chapter 13 this morning, we're going to come to the second important lesson that Jesus wants to communicate to his disciples as he's thinking of the things that he wants to share with them before he departs and dies. The next thing he's going to share with them is a lesson about love. Now, This lesson that Jesus shares about love is not just going to be communicated with words, but it's also going to be communicated with actions. You see, Jesus is going to use his words and give a clear command to his disciples that they need to love one another. And before and after that command, Jesus is going to demonstrate different aspects of his love. So as we finish up John chapter 13 this morning, we're going to look at five different aspects of Jesus's love. And one of those aspects of Jesus's love was a command, a command to his disciples to love one another. And so we're going to see the, the words of Jesus to love, but the other aspects of Jesus loves are going to be love in action. And so we're going to see the example of Jesus in how to love as well. And so, you know, loving one another is really one of the most important things that we can do as Christians. And so what we're going to look at this morning is not only important for us to understand, but even more importantly, to apply and actually put into practice in our life. So let's start by looking at the first aspect of Jesus' love, which is seen in John chapter 13, 13, verses 18 through 30, and where Jesus starts to reveal that Judas is going to betray him. Now remember back in verses 10 and 11 from last week, uh, Jesus said this to Peter. Jesus said to him, "'He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, "'but is completely clean. "'And if you are clean, but not all of you. "'For he knew who would betray him, "'therefore he said, you are not all clean.'" So Jesus is helping Peter understand the spiritual truth that since Peter believed in Jesus, Peter was spiritually clean, but unfortunately not all of the disciples in that room that night were spiritually clean because Jesus knew that Judas didn't believe in him, which made Judas spiritually unclean, but more than that, Judas was also going to betray Jesus. And so that's why Jesus says, not all of you are clean, speaking of Judas, Well, now as we come to verse 18, Jesus is kind of picking up that thought again about his betrayal, and notice what he says, starting in verse 18. I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled, he who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it comes, that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Most assuredly, I say to you, He who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, most assuredly I say to you, one of you will betray me. So back in verse 11, Jesus says, you're not all clean. And then here in verse 18, he says, I do not speak concerning all of you. So twice Jesus is making very clear that I'm not speaking about everyone in this room, that there is an individual that I'm singling out that doesn't fit into all the rest of what I'm sharing here. And this would have been troubling news for the disciples to hear, that there's someone that kind of doesn't belong. There's someone that there's a problem with. And then Jesus makes the news even worse by quoting Psalm 41.9, 41, nine, which says this, even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. You know, this verse is speaking of a treacherous attack and betrayal. The phrase has lifted up his heel against me is speaking of someone who is literally lifting their heel, lifting their foot in order to kick you. In that culture, if you were invited to a meal, you know, you were expected to show gratitude and appreciation for the invitation, for the meal that you were given. But if instead you lifted your heel and you kicked the host, you know, that would be an act of great disrespect and hatred. But if the person who the host invited was their own familiar friend and whom they trusted, and if that trusted friend, not some, you know, stranger or some acquaintance, if that trusted friend lifted up their heel and kicked the host, it would have been worse. That would be a treacherous betrayal to the host. So the psalm that Jesus is quoting is speaking of this great betrayal and treachery and I'm sure the disciples are wondering, you know, why is it that you are quoting this psalm that speaks of betrayal and that speaks of treachery, and Jesus clarifies why he's saying that in verses 19 and 20. Now I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass that you may believe that I am he, most assuredly I say to you, he who receives, whomever I send receives me, and who receives me, and who receives and. He who receives me receives him who sent me. So Jesus just quoted this psalm about betrayal and treachery, and he's about to tell them that one of you is going to betray me, but now he's giving two reasons why he is letting the disciples know of this event before it actually happens. The betrayal is not going to happen until, you know, several hours away. But, but Jesus knows it's coming and he's now pre-warning the disciples of this betrayal that's happening. And there's two reasons here that Jesus gives for why he's doing this. The first reason is to give the disciples another evidence that Jesus is God. That's why he says, I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he, speaking of that I am God. So I'm telling you before it happens. So when it happens, you can look back and go, wow, how is it that Jesus knew this? Well, he knew it because he's God. How could Jesus know of a secret plot that only Judas and the religious leaders knew about to arrest and kill Jesus? Well, he knew because he was God. And so he's helping the disciples know. I'm telling you this beforehand. First of all, so that you can have another evidence of who I am and my knowledge of events that will happen before They actually occur. The second reason Jesus tells the disciples of this betrayal before it happens is to give Judas, the betrayer, another warning. You see that rejecting Jesus and betraying Jesus is ultimately a rejection and betrayal of God the Father who has sent Jesus. And that's why Jesus says, Most assuredly I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Yo, know, Judas, I know what you're about to do. I know what the plan is. You're going to betray me to the religious leaders. But Judas, you need to understand a betrayal and a rejection of me is a betrayal and rejection of God, the father, because I am God. I am one with him. So Judas, don't do it. Now, many of the disciples are still probably a bit confused about what Jesus is trying to communicate with bringing in this psalm and and sharing this stuff. And so Jesus is now just going to get real plain with them to make sure that none of them miss what he's trying to communicate. Notice what he says in verse 21. When Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Guys, if you missed it so far, if you missed why I shared this psalm about betrayal, if you missed why I shared all these things, let me just be real clear with you. One of you is going to betray me. And notice that this betrayal is not just something that Jesus knows and it doesn't impact him. We're told that he's troubled in spirit. You know, the reality that this person that's been with him for three years, the one that he's loved so much, is going to turn and betray him It troubles him, but he wants the disciples to be aware of it. He's making clear this betrayal's coming. Well, once again, that would be very troubling news for the disciples to hear. Because at this point in time, all they know is that one of you, 12, are going to betray me. They don't know who that person is. So let's see how they respond in verses 22 through 25. Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter, therefore, motioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. Then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? So after Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me, you have what you would expect. The disciples are now looking around at one another and they're perplexed. And I think they're perplexed because they're probably thinking, surely not one of us. I mean, we know that there are other people. We know that there are religious leaders. We know that there are people who would seek to betray you, Jesus, but not one of us. You know, we've lived together for three years. We've followed you for three years. I mean, surely we know one another better than that. Surely there's not a guy in this room tonight that would do that. They're perplexed at this knowledge that Jesus is giving them. Now, if you and I were in that situation, probably the biggest question that we would ask is, who is it? As we're looking around and maybe even thinking like, it's not me, is it? We would want to know, who is it, Jesus? Who's going to be the one that betrays you? Well, that's definitely how Peter felt. He wanted to know who the disciple was that would betray Jesus. And notice what we're told here. We're told that there was leaning on Jesus's bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Now, this is an interesting thing that we see through the gospel of John, because John, the author of this gospel, never refers to himself by name. He only refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And so the person leaning against Jesus was John, the author of this gospel. And I think this is a great way for every believer to see themselves. I mean, and this is just a, a wonderful mindset that John's like, you know what? The, the way I identify myself is the disciple whom Jesus loved. And for anybody who has put their trust in Jesus, we could say the same thing. You know, I'm the disciple. I'm the child of God whom Jesus loves. You know, we live in a culture now where people just really are confused about their identity, and it's getting worse and worse, and there's more and more things that people are just wondering about and confused about. And you know what? One of the problems and one of the reasons that confusion is coming is because people don't understand this important truth that, hey, I'm loved by Jesus, and when you have that as the foundation of your identity, everything else that you identify as should stem from that reality that, you know what, I am someone who's loved by Jesus and everything else that I do, everything else that I identify with, you know, that, that's nothing in comparison to Jesus's love for me. That's where it all starts. That's where the foundation is. That's where my worth comes from, Jesus's love for me. Now, there's something we're told here about John that that maybe seems a little odd to you when you read it. If you don't understand how people actually sat during these Passover meals, we're told that John was leaning on Jesus's bosom. So he's leaning against Jesus's chest. Now, during the Passover meal, and really for most of the important meals, the feast meals or, or important gatherings, you know, um, People in that culture, they wouldn't sit on chairs as we typically do around a table like for Thanksgiving. You know, um, you know, for many people, when they picture the Last Supper, you know, Jesus eating with his disciples, that the thing that comes to their mind is Leonardo da Vinci's painting of the Last Supper. And even though this is really a, a nice painting, he did a great job, it's not historically accurate at all. Uh and so you need to understand that is not the the setting and what it would have looked like there uh with Jesus and his disciples. These pictures here are more historically accurate. As you can see they would lie on cushions or mats and they would often use a U-shaped table that's called uh a triclinium uh that was about the height of a coffee table and they would lie with their heads towards the table leaning on their right or left uh, arm so that their right hand was you know free to go ahead and grab food and to eat and do that and sometimes if they got tired of leaning on their left arm they would just kind of rest back on the person who was next to them and that's what we see here with John John is now resting back on Jesus's chest. And that reveals something important here. It reveals that John is seated right next to Jesus. And he's mostly seated to the right of Jesus because he's leaning on his left arm and leaning back. So Jesus is most likely here and John's to Jesus' right. Well, this brings up another important thing to understand about the Passover meal. And that is the significance of where people sat during that meal. As you can see From this picture on the left side of the u-shaped table would be the host of the passover meal and the first place to the left of the host was the first place of honor the most honored guest would go to the left of the host and to the right of the host is the most second honored guest and then as you continue away from the host your honor would get less and less the farther you were away so the closer you're seated to the host the greater honor that you have at the meal. Now we have something very similar in our culture at wedding receptions. You know, you come to the wedding reception and usually there's that head table and right in the middle of the head table are the hosts. You have the bride and you have the groom. And guess what? Right next to the bride and groom, you have the people that they want to demonstrate most honor to. You have those positions of honor. Right next to the bride, you have the maid of honor. And right next to the groom, you have the groom, uh, the the best man. And, and then you have, you know, bridesmaids and groomsmen and, and other people that are also people of honor and then family members. But the closer you are to the bride and groom, the greater honor that you have there at the wedding reception. Well, the Passover, I want you to understand something. It was the responsibility of the host to determine where people sat. So the host would be the one to say, you know what? I'm going to give you this place of honor. You have the first place of honor. You have the second place of honor and you're seated here, 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 until, you know, you're the farthest from the host. And so because that was the cultural reality and Jesus was the host of this Passover meal, it's most likely that Jesus is the one that is determining where the disciples sit. And I think it would be even more likely that Jesus would do this because remember right when this started, the disciples are arguing among themselves as to who's the greatest. And I can just imagine all of them wanting to fight for those seats right next to Jesus, those seats of honor that would demonstrate, hey, look at us. We're the ones who have the most honor from Jesus. So it's likely that Jesus trying to stop all that nonsense would have chosen who was going to be those people in the place of honor to his left and to his right. So here we see that John is... In that second place of honor, seated to uh, Jesus' right. And Jesus most likely put John in that second place of honor. But you know what's very interesting is we have the greatest place of honor there is. That Jesus most likely chose one of the disciples to sit in this place of honor. You know who's in that place of honor? Judas. When you read all the gospel accounts, you come up with four areas or four specific places that we can understand of where people sat, and we can know Jesus is the host, we know that John is the one to the right of Jesus in that second place of honor, we know that Judas is in the greatest place of honor to the left of Jesus, and we assume that Peter is all the way at the end because Peter is the last person that Jesus washed his feet and so if Jesus went around the table, he would finally get to Peter. That one's not as for sure, but that's the likely, the, th- the other three uh, we can be confident of. So, so understand this. Jesus has placed Judas, the one he knows is going to betray him, in the greatest place of honor there during the Passover meal. And just what an amazing demonstration of love that was to Judas. You know, if you knew someone was going to betray you, would you put them in that place of honor? I mean, if you were going to have a wedding, would you put the person who would betray you as your maid of honor or as your best man? I mean, we wouldn't even invite them, you know, much less put them in a place of honor. And so it's just mind boggling to see what Jesus does here for Judas. David Guzik wrote this. Sometimes we imagine people are against us when they're not And it makes us suspicious, unpleasant, and afraid. Jesus knew Judas was against him, yet his love and goodness became greater instead of lesser. I mean, this is so different from the way in which we respond. If we knew this, our animosity, our behavior, you know, our attitude towards Judas would be so negative, and yet you just see a greater amount of love that Jesus displays to the one he knows is going To betray him. Well, Peter, as we've noticed, is most likely sitting across the table from John, who is resting against Jesus. He motions to John in some way that lets John know you need to ask Jesus who it is. And so we're told that John leans back and he asks Jesus, Who's gonna betray you? Well, let's see how Jesus responds in verse 26 through 30. Jesus answered, It is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. But none of the, no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. For some thought, because Judas had the money box that Judas had said to him, buy those things we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. Having received the piece of bread, he then went out immediately, and it was night. So John leans back against Jesus, asks Jesus the question that everyone's wondering, who is the one in this room that's going to betray you? And Jesus answers John by saying, it is he whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. Now, another important thing to understand about the Passover meal and this kind of the setting and what we see here is that the host had the responsibility of just the whole uh, time that they ate together. Because remember, the Passover meal was very symbolic. All the food that they ate was symbolic, all the things that they drank and when they ate them and when they drank them were symbolic. It pointed back to God delivering them from Egypt. And so it was the host's job to explain each thing and then to make sure that, you know, they took things in, in, in certain uh, moments of the night together. Uh, and so the host was kind of, you know, directing all of this. But in the middle of the feast, the hope the host would offer his guests a piece of bread dipped in this sauce of fruit. And what that represented was the fruit of the promised land. It was this blessing that the host would give of like, remember how we were delivered and brought to the promised land. And he would give to each person this. And it was just a a wonderful thing that the host would do. But the first person who would get that dipped piece of bread was the person who sat in the greatest place of honor because this was a blessing from the host to them. And I'm gonna bless the person here that I have invited who's the greatest place of honor. And they're gonna be the first one to get this dipped bread. And so Jesus gives this to Judas, and everyone would have expected that. Judas is in that position. He's the one who's going to get this dipped piece of bread. And this thing is now kind of symbolic in more than one way. And we notice that throughout the Last Supper anyway, where Jesus is saying, you know, this used to point back to, you know, delivery from Egypt. Well, now it's going to point to my sacrifice on the cross. But here he dips this bread and gives it to Judas. And I think just once again, just imagining being Judas, He's already made it clear. He knows what you're about to do. He's placed you in this place of honor. He's still even giving you this honorable thing to say, I'm still going to dip this and give it to you first. And I know exactly what you're going to do. And he does that for Judas, but it's also something else because he tells John, this is going to show who's going to do this to me. I'm going to dip this bread in this cup and I'm going to hand it to the person who's going to be the one that's betrays me and so he gives it to Judas and then we're told now after the piece of bread Satan entered him then Jesus said to Judas what you do do quickly after Jesus reveals that Judas is the betrayer notice that right away we have Satan entering Judas and this is not something that we see commonly in scripture a lot of times we'll see demon possession that demons are entering people But understand that Satan is not omnipresent. He can only be at one place at one time. If he was going to possess someone, it could only be one person. Well, guess what? Satan's not leaving this up to any demon. He sees Jesus and the love that Jesus is displaying to Judas. But Judas is an important part of the the plan that ultimately is a satanic plan. You know, it's not just coming from the religious leaders. Satan wants Jesus dead. Judas is a part of that. And so Satan enters Judas... And then Jesus says to Judas, what you do, do quickly. See, Jesus knows, I know what you're going to do. You're going to go out. You're going to meet with the religious leaders. You're going to get the guards. You're going to come back. You're going to arrest me. I know what you're going to do. So I know what your plan is. Go do it quickly. Now, everyone else sitting in the room, they have no idea. This is the first time they even heard that there was a betrayer. First time they heard it was Judas. And they surely have no clue that Judas has some plan with the religious leaders. So we're told they don't know what Jesus is talking about. What you do, do quickly that Judas was the one with the money. So they're thinking, do we need more supplies for the feast? Maybe sending Judas to get something. Maybe sending Judas to give some money to the poor. They're not aware of what's going on. And then we're told it was night after Judas went out quickly. But notice Judas makes a choice. He chooses and all of this, he had all these opportunities to turn back and say, no, I'm not going to go through with this. Jesus loves me. Jesus has placed me in this place of honor. Jesus has done all this for me. And Jesus even knows that I'm going to do this and is still loving me. I'm not going to go through with it. He had opportunity after opportunity to turn back from this horrible decision, but he moves forward with it. And so the first aspect of Jesus' love that we see here in Jesus dealing with Judas is Jesus' love was comprehensive. You know, something that's comprehensive is something that includes everything. Jesus' love included everyone, even his betrayer. And this is one of those aspects of love that is really, really difficult for you and I to apply to our life. You know, we would prefer a love that is limited as opposed to a love that is comprehensive. We'd rather just love those who love us instead of being told by God to love everyone, even our enemies. We don't want to love people who do horrible things to us. We don't want to love people who betray us. But that is the comprehensive love that Jesus displayed and the love that he commands us to display as well. Jesus said this in Matthew 5, 43 and 44. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. So the first aspect of Jesus's love that we see here in verses 18 through 30 is that Jesus's love was comprehensive. He was willing to love even those who betrayed him. The second aspect of Jesus' love is seen in verses 31 and 32. So when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. If you remember back in chapter 12, Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And that portion of chapter 12 revealed very clearly that when Jesus spoke of being glorified, he was referring to his death on the cross. That the cross and his death for the sins of the world was going to be something that would bring glory not only to him, but also to God the Father. Well, now that Judas has left to go and get the religious leaders to go and betray and arrest and ultimately crucify Jesus, things have been set in motion for everything to transpire now. Now the clock's ticking. Now Judas has gone out. Now the wheels are set in motion, and soon Jesus is going to be arrested, and all these things are going to fall into place to the point of the glorification of Jesus on the cross when He dies for the sins of the world. So those things leading up to the cross have now started. And they're leading to that wonderful moment where Jesus pays for our sins. And that's why Jesus says, now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him and God is glorified in him. God will also glorify him and himself and glorify him immediately. Now the thing I want you to note here as we look at the glorification that's about to happen is that it was costly. In order for this glorification to happen, Jesus has to be mocked. He has to be beaten. He has to be crucified. He has to take the sin of the entire world upon Himself and more significantly, the judgment of the Father upon Himself. In order for this to happen, the Father has to allow His Son to go through this. The Father has to pour the sin of the world onto His sinless Son. And worst of all, the Father has to pour His wrath upon Jesus who took our sin but doesn't deserve that wrath. So what happened at the cross not only glorifies the Father, not only glorifies the Son, it's also the greatest demonstration of love that the Father and Son display. And the thing that I want us to note here is that demonstration of love was costly. What the father gave was his only son, the most valuable thing to him. And what Jesus gave was his own life, the most valuable thing to him. You know, we often say that what Jesus did for us is a free gift because it is a free gift. But the problem that we have with that is we often associate free with cheap. But we need to understand that what Jesus did wasn't cheap. It's free to us, which is a wonderful blessing, but it cost him everything. It cost the Father and him what was most valuable to them. It was of extreme cost that we could probably never even comprehend the cost of that love. So the second aspect of Jesus' love is Jesus' love was costly. This is another thing that we often struggle with when it comes to love. You know, we're fine with showing and giving love when it really doesn't cost us that much. When it doesn't cost us much of our time, when it doesn't cost us much of our effort or much of our energy or much of our resources. Yeah, I'll give you love if it's not going to cost me much. But when that changes and love does cost me a lot of my time or my efforts or my energy or my resources or my life, All of a sudden, it's like, yeah, maybe I'm not willing to give that kind of love to you. If you're not willing to love because it's costly, just understand you're not willing to love like Jesus. Because Jesus loved when it was costly. His love cost him everything. And if we want to love like him, we need to have a love that costs us as well. The third aspect of Jesus' love is seen in verse 33. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I'm going, you cannot come. What Jesus shares here with his disciples is, you know what, hey, I'm only going to be with you guys a little while longer. And where I'm going, you can't come, you can't join me where I'm going. And once again, just like hearing that someone was going to betray Jesus, this is another big blow to the disciples that Jesus is going somewhere and they cannot come with him. Because think about this. The disciples have left everything to follow Jesus. For three years, they've left it all. They're following him. And they have this expectation that there's a reward at the end of this. They're going to be the right-hand men. They're going to be important people when Jesus establishes his earthly kingdom. And so to hear that Jesus is going somewhere and they're not allowed to join him would be quite a blow. But the way that Jesus communicates this bad news demonstrates the kind of care that he has for his disciples. We see this tender care in two ways. First, he addresses them as little children. Now, this is the only time that this Greek word is used in any of the Gospels. It's a word of tender feeling and care that a father or a mother would use toward their children who needed their help, who needed their protection. So this wasn't some negative term like, oh, you guys, just little babies, little kids, you're acting like spoiled brats. It wasn't used in a a negative way at all. As he says, little children, it's referring to this, hey, you know what? I have this special love relationship and care for you guys. You guys are so important to me. And so right before he delivers this bad news, he wants to remind them of the kind of care, the kind of love he has for them and he uses this intimate term little children to help do that. The second way we see Jesus's tender care is he reveals to the disciples what is coming to help prepare them for it. You know, as parents When we know that something difficult is coming, that our kids are going to have to endure and have to go through, if we wanna show tender care for them, we wanna help them get through that. And one of the ways we help them is by revealing things to them before it happens in order to prepare them. In order to help them deal with the heartache and the hardship and the struggles that are coming, we share some news with them to help them with what's gonna take place. And that's what we see here, what Jesus does for his disciples. And it demonstrates the third aspect of Jesus's love. Jesus's love was caring. You know, if you truly love someone, you're gonna care about them. You're gonna care about what they think. You're gonna care about what they're feeling. You're gonna care about what they're going through. You know, something we need to understand is a lack of care is a demonstration of a lack of love. You know, I've talked to husbands who will tell me how much they love their wives, but in the same sentence sometimes even say, you know what, but I don't care what they think or I don't care how they feel. So wait a second. (laughs) A lack of care for their thoughts or a lack of care for their feelings is a lack of love. So don't be like, oh, I love them so much and I don't care how they feel. Those two don't go hand in hand because one is loving and one is not. If you want to love like Jesus, you must care for people like Jesus did. The fourth aspect of Jesus' love is seen in verses 33, 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So Jesus, in the midst of all this, says, you know what, guys? I got a new commandment. That I'm going to give you, and these are Jews. You know they got lots of commandments in the Old Testament, and Jesus saying I have a new one now for you. And the new commandment is that you love one another as I have loved you. Now I want you to understand something: the commandment to love one another—that's not new. That's something that you see throughout the Old Testament. One example of that is Leviticus 19:18 says, "You shall love your neighbor as yourself." So a command to love others, that's not new. But what is new is the extent of their love. The extent of love that Jesus is saying the disciples need to show to one another has now been raised. It's now greater than what they have in the Old Testament. Because before, all it was told is you gotta love your neighbor as yourself. So guys, you gotta love each other the way that you love yourself. Jesus is saying, nope, not good enough. I'm gonna raise the extent of love to be even more than how you love yourself. I want you to love each other as I have loved you. And so that's the new aspect of this command, that love others in the way that Jesus loves you. But also notice what Jesus says will happen if the disciples will demonstrate this kind of love to one another. in Verse 35. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. When we love other believers like Jesus loved us, that is a demonstration to the world that we are Jesus' disciples, that we are his followers. You know, sadly, the church is often known more for its fighting, more for its divisions, even over petty issues than it is for its love. And it's a horrible witness to the world because Jesus is saying, they're going to know you're my followers. They're going to know you're my disciples because you love each other. The fourth aspect of Jesus' love is that Jesus' love was commanded. So Jesus not only commands us to love, he commands us to love in the same way that he loved. And this wasn't some suggestion You know, guys, it'd be nice if you do this. I know you're busy. If you can't handle it, that's fine. No, this was a command. I'm giving you something new, a command that I expect you to do. And that is to love each other as I have loved you. The fifth and final aspect of Jesus' love is seen in verses 36 through 38. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall Follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Jesus answered him, will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. Right before Jesus gave the command to love one another as he loved them, he told the disciples, hey, I'm going somewhere and you guys can't come. Well, Peter didn't lose sight of that. You know, the command to love one another, he goes right back to, wait a second, Jesus, you just said you're going somewhere and we can't follow you. And Peter wants to know where in the world Jesus is going and why he can't come. And so he says, to um, ask Jesus that. And Jesus answers Peter, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterwards. See, no one's aware of the reality of where Jesus is headed, except for Jesus at this point in time. Jesus knows, I'm going to the cross. I'm going to die for the sins of the world. And you guys can't join me on that path. You guys can't come with me there. I'm the only one capable of doing that. You guys can't join me on this journey. But notice, he does say, Peter, you shall follow me afterwards. And this is interesting. It's not just a mindset of, you know what, Peter, when I rise from the dead, you can start following me again. We're going to have a relationship again, which is something that does happen, which is wonderful. But it's also a mindset of, Peter, you know what? You will follow me to death in the future. I'm going to die right now, and you can't join me on this one, but you're gonna have your own journey of death in the future. But Peter doesn't know what Jesus is talking about. No one in that room does. He probably thinks, you know, Jesus, you're just going on a journey and you don't want us to come. Maybe you think it's too difficult. Maybe you're you're going back to Jerusalem. We know the religious leaders want to kill you, but hey, I'll go anywhere. And that's why he, he responds by saying, Lord, Why can I not follow you? I'll lay down my life for your sakes. Peter's basically saying, Jesus, I'll follow you no matter where you go. No matter how difficult it gets, I don't care because you know what? I'm willing to die for you. I'm willing to lay down my life for you. So wherever it leads you, whatever the path is, I want to be there by your side. Now, I believe that Peter is being very sincere. That Peter believes that when push comes to shove, he'll die for Jesus. That when people ask, are you one of his disciples? That he'd say, I surely am and I'm willing to die for Jesus. I I believe that Peter thinks that of himself. But Peter had a problem. His problem was he thought more highly of himself than he ought to. He thought he was stronger than he actually was. But Jesus knew the weakness that Peter had that Peter doesn't even know, that Peter's not even aware of. And Jesus reveals that weakness to Peter right now. And he tells Peter, Will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. Jesus, I'll die for you. Really, Peter, will you? I got some bad news. Peter, you're actually going to deny me three times. Now we're going to get into Peter's denial when it actually happens several chapters from now. But right here, I want to focus on another aspect of Jesus's love. You see, Jesus knew Peter's going to deny him. He also knew that the rest of the disciples were going to abandon him. But notice that Jesus responds by staying committed to them, even though none of them are going to stay committed to Jesus in his hour of greatest need. The fifth aspect of Jesus's love is Jesus's love was committed. Jesus stayed committed to his disciples even when they denied him, even when they abandoned him, even when they didn't stay committed to him, when they failed him. And this is another aspect of Jesus's love that is very hard for you and I to apply to our lives. You know, most people struggle staying committed to people who are not committed to them. We stay committed, struggle staying committed to people who fail us, who, who let us down, who deny us, who abandon us. You see, we often see commitment as a contract where both parties have to equally show commitment in order for me to continue with that commitment. So if you're not showing the same level of commitment that I am, well, then I'm free to not be committed to you any longer. That's kind of the mindset that we often have in our culture today. And so when someone is not committed, when they let you down, when they fail you, you feel perfectly in your right to say, well, then I'm no longer committed to you. You know, when Jesus rose from the dead, he didn't go out and find new disciples. He didn't go, man, you guys, remember when I was in the garden and none of you prayed? Remember when I was arrested and you all ran away? Hey, Peter, remember when people were asking you if you were my disciple and you denied me? Yeah, well, you guys had your chance. I'm gonna go get 12 new disciples who actually will be committed to me. I'm done with you guys. When he rose from the dead, that wasn't what he did. He said, you know what, I know you guys all failed me. I know you guys all were not committed to me, but I'm still committed to you. I forgive you. I'm going to use you. I'm going to restore you. I'm going to do great things through your life. Because that's not the kind of love that I have. And the great thing for you and I is we're just like the disciples. We haven't been committed to Jesus like we should. We've denied. we We've failed. And just like he did with those disciples, he said, you know what? None of that's going to keep me from staying committed to you. I know that you have failed me. I know that you haven't been committed to me like you should have. But you know what? I'm always going to stay committed to you because that's what my love for you does. And this is one of those hard things for us. Say, you know what? I'm going to be like Jesus. And I'm going to stay committed to those who are hard to be committed to. Committed to those who fail me. Committed to those who don't Show that same kind of level of commitment because that's what love does. So in these verses, we've seen five important aspects of Jesus' love that not only we need to understand, but also we need to apply to our lives. The comprehensive aspect of love means that we must love everyone, even those who betray us, even our enemies. The costliness of love means that we have to sacrifice our time and efforts, our energy, our resources, and maybe even our life. The caring aspect of love means that we should truly care about the people, what they think, what they feel, what they're going through. The commandment of love means that we should do it in obedience to Jesus because He loved us and gave His life for us. And the commitment of love means that we stay committed even when people fail us and even when they're not committed like we are to them. I'm sure you've noticed that each one of these five aspects of Jesus love starts with a C. You know, I've done that with the hopes that you will remember it better. But I just want to throw one more out to you to help with a question that we often have. And that is capable. And the reason I'm adding this is because when we see a command like this, we come to the conclusion that I'm not capable of loving like Jesus loved. I mean, I look at this. I look what Jesus did with Judas. Couldn't do it. Look what Jesus did with Peter. No way. Look how Jesus loved others. That's not me. And so we just come to this conclusion, I am not capable of loving like this. But here's the thing that we really need to remember. Jesus will never command us to do something he will not make us capable of accomplishing. Jesus is not gonna command you to do something and sit back and go, I know they can never accomplish it. No, he says, I'll command you and I'll make you capable. Well, how does he do that? Well, he gave us his spirit. The Holy Spirit lives and dwells within us. And guess what? The fruit of the Spirit, love. He is the one who's capable of giving us that. Now, you and I in our own strength, and our own love, no, we're not capable. But if we will trust in the power of the Spirit of God that dwells within us, we can love like Jesus loved. He will make us capable of doing what he commanded us to do. Or that famous verse that we love to quote, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So I want to encourage you to look to Jesus, rely upon the Holy Spirit, and seek to love others like Jesus loved you. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful. Your word tells us we only love you because you first loved us, that you were the one who initiated that love. You are the one who powerfully demonstrated that love on the cross for us. And I just pray, Lord, that one of the ways in which we would respond to that great love for us is that we would follow your command to love others as you love us. That the way in which we worship you, the way in which we demonstrate love to you would be to love those that you love and to love them in such a way that you love them. But Lord, we do recognize how difficult that is for us. How that goes against our sinful nature. How that goes against what the world teaches. But Lord, I just pray that we would first have a biblical view of what love is. And second, have a biblical understanding of the source of power that makes us capable of loving others. And I just pray that you would remind us that we have that. That we would depend on that. That we would look to you for that. And that we would see a change in our love towards our family, our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, Lord, that it would be evident and that each day we would rely upon you to give us that. And so we ask that you would do this, Lord. We pray that this week we would see a real change in our love. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, looks like we're getting a little bit closer, possibly, to some of the social distancing guidelines to loosen up a bit, especially here in Texas. Uh, It hasn't happened yet. Uh, I don't believe that's going to happen by next Sunday. Uh, But we're going to be taking it a week at a time uh, when things open up and we know that we're capable uh, and safe to get together uh, as a church body. We will definitely let you know that. But next Sunday is the first Sunday of the month which means we are going to take communion together. And just like we did on Good Friday, I'm going to encourage you, go out and get communion elements for yourself and for your family uh, so that after the service, you can partake with us of communion as we remember what Jesus did for us. But why don't we just finish just worshiping the one who loves us more than any of us deserve. We love you guys. I know that I am praying that I would love you better, love you more like Jesus, and I hope that is your prayer as well.